Okay, so about two months ago, my wife Rachel sent me a WhatsApp message with a link to a quote from the British Pentecostal evangelist, Smith Wigglesworth. For those of you who are familiar with Wigglesworth, will know that he was someone who could pack a massive punch with his preaching. Uh, And since then, I've been really challenged by this particular quote taken from his book, Greater Works, Experiencing God's Power. And in this, Wigglesworth says... The reason the world is not seeing Jesus is that Christian people are not filled with Jesus. They're satisfied with attending weekly uh, meetings weekly, reading the Bible occasionally, and praying sometimes. It's an awful thing for me to see people who profess to be Christians lifeless, powerless, and in a place where their lives are so parallel to unbelievers that it is difficult to tell which place they are in, whether in the flesh or in the spirit. Yeah, amen, right? That's good. I think that's, I think that's good. I'm going to hopefully make it good by the end. Um, I'm sure you can see why I found this challenging. He definitely calls a spade a spade, doesn't he? I, I mean, I, I think it's good that we have this, uh, this kind of stuff to correct ourselves and reflect on, because we can sometimes just get caught in what we're doing. Um, now, some of the terminology isn't exactly helpful, if you ask me. Uh, for example, the, the word unbeliever is a little divisive in that it implies that you're either in the church or you're not in the church, you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Um, and I'd rather refer back to Steve's sermon about a month ago uh, where he made use of the angle scale to explain that people have a journey with Jesus, uh, which is maybe a bit better, I think, uh, rather than a metaphor where well, you're either in or out. It's a bit odd. Um, but the sentiment from Rigglesworth is still the cha- is still quite a challenging one. Essentially, what he's suggesting was that the church does a bad job of reflecting Jesus into the world. So bearing in mind that Wigglesworth wrote this book decades ago, and the world may have changed since then, I guess the question is, does the world recognize Jesus in the church today? And if not, why not? Are we going wrong somewhere? Now, I don't know about you, but if we're not reflecting Jesus properly and being the body of Christ that was, that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, then what are we doing? And I wonder how many of you felt that, as I read that quote, maybe felt as challenged um, as I did. I think one of the reasons that I've been un- unable to stop thinking about this um, is because it presents some awkward questions uh, to the church, and it it's also gives us a difficult proposal, which is that Christians are not filled with Jesus nor do they attempt to have the kind of integrity that Jesus requires. Now, don't get me wrong, I think the church does a lot of good, um, and I like to think that at Ellsbury Vineyard, we certainly prioritise some worthy and honourable causes, but are we doing everything we can to ensure the world really, really sees Jesus when it looks at us as a church? A lot of how the world sees the church comes down to culture uh, and the kind of culture that we're developing. So if we're to understand what people see when they look at our church and if we're to understand whether or not people can see Jesus when they look at us, we need to realise how our church can affect those that are unfamiliar with it. If the world doesn't see Jesus, it's perhaps because we're not explaining our ethos and our culture effectively. And any mini-culture that you go into needs to be clear in describing their values, their ethos, their beliefs, just simply to make it easier to join that culture and to understand what they're doing. Um, I'll give you a little example of a a place where I felt quite unfamiliar, and hopefully you'll see what I mean. Um, When I got my tattoo, uh, I remember worrying quite significantly about lots of different things. Uh, Leading up to the day, 
I was excited, and I'd, I'd lived with the design for about a year, um, and I was happy with it, and I'd, I'd spoken to an artist, and I was happy with his work, and I liked it, and I thought, this is all good. Uh, and there was very little anxiety, to be honest. However, driving to the studio was a little bit different on the day. I suddenly started to feel quite anxious and also thought of all the worst-case scenarios. I do that. I do it all the time. My mind just takes me to the worst place. Um, what if I didn't like the design that was then on my skin forever? What if the ink was poisonous and my arm fell off? <laughs> what if, for some reason, the artist knew me and had a grudge against me and stabbed me with the gun? <laughs> And then it took me down a bit. What if it was painful? What if it was so painful that I passed out and then he couldn't finish it and I went home with half a tattoo? And then really boring stuff like, uh, what was I going to talk to him about for six hours? He told me it was going to take six hours. I can't even chat to my barber for 30 minutes, let alone a complete stranger for six hours. Anyway, I arrived and realized I actually had no idea what I was doing. I was completely unfamiliar. Uh, with the whole situation. I also didn't really understand some of the language, which was weird, and I don't mean the fruity language, um, but there, there was lots of language around, and they, they were saying things to each other that I didn't really understand, and there was lots going on, and all of a sudden I found myself in this mini-culture that was completely alien to me, and as a newbie, it was quite intimidating. And then after a while it was fine, and I realized they were just people, and it was all right, it was fine. Um, but I was unfamiliar with the culture and the way people talked and the behavior and expectations. And this is why we need to be aware of how the culture here at Ellsbury Vineyard affects other people when they come into our building. We need to make sure we explain ourselves really well and describe what we believe, what we do, and why we do it. But having said that, I do believe that's why it's so good um, that we have the range of literature that we do here. And, and it's why it's important that we go through it at the beginning of each service. There is a reason for it. We don't just do it for a laugh. But as a body of people, what is the church typically known for? Is it known for love, hope, promise, sacrifice, and looking out for the poor? Or is it known to be judgmental, hypocritical, and close-minded? The thing is, the church will probably be all of those things, since it's made up of humans, and we're so flawed that we can be all of those things all at the same time. So we need a blueprint. We need to have something to refer to that shows us what a church would look like if it was filled with Jesus, uh, and there are a number of great examples in Scripture for what a healthy church looks like. But I'm going to be looking at Acts chapter 4 in particular. So if you have a Bible with you, find uh, chapter 4 so that you're ready. Um, but before we move on to Acts, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of theology, so that Steve is chuffed. Um, <laughs> and Lynn, I don't know what, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, just to give you a little context leading up to that point in chapter 4 so that we know where we're at. Uh, so Acts begins with Jesus' ascension into heaven, and the promise of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled, uh, and it fills the room, and they all speak in tongues, and it's lovely. Uh, and then there's a little bit of what I suppose is church admin, as Judas is replaced by Matthias. Then we have the day of Pentecost. And the, uh, no, that's, I've said that already. Move on. Um, and then we have Peter. He goes into the crowd, filled with the Spirit, gives that really great um, speech, where he talks about Joel and he um, quotes the prophet Joel and, and what he sees God doing amongst them and then future Christians in the church. The crowd gets really excited and they also decide to follow Peter and the disciples. So essentially, this is where the church is born. Acts tells us that these new converts, they live together, 
They ate together, they went to temple together, and they lived generous lives giving to those in need. Uh, The church grew, they saw signs and wonders, and then Peter heals the crippled beggar in chapter 3. And these signs and wonders, alongside the fact that the disciples were telling people about the resurrection, which would have been mind-blowing, was enough to get the attention of the religious leaders at the time. Uh, And Peter and some other guys were pulled along to try and explain themselves to to these religious leaders. Uh, However, they couldn't find fault enough to imprison them. And then we get to this great section in chapter 4 where we actually see more of how the church operates and how it conducted itself and how they behaved. Um, We're going to read this because actually I think this is our blueprint for a healthy church. Acts chapter 4, 32 to 35, it says this. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. I just want to break this down because I think this holds some really crucial examples of what church should look like when it's healthy and when it's filled with Jesus. Uh, And there are some clues here that we can't really ignore So I've spotted three features of a healthy church culture in this scripture that I think can go a long way in measuring uh, how much of a Jesus culture, not the band, um, we are reflecting onto the world. So firstly, a healthy church is united in heart and mind, and that's found in verse 2 where it actually just says that, all the believers were united in heart and mind. So what does that look like? Thanks for asking. Um, I don't think that's just a lovely picture that's painted in our minds about um, being united. and uh, It's not just a throwaway comment about some kind of ideal um, or, you know, how we ought to live with each other. It's not a call for us to be nice with each other and to be friends. Uh, This little group of verses at the end of Acts 4 is much more significant than you might imagine because they are the first group of people to really reap the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross. They're the first group of people to really respond to his resurrection. They're living in the freedom granted to them, and without the burden of the eternal consequences of sin on their shoulders, they're living as God had always intended humanity to. In fact, this was the true community, this was true church as God had meant for it to be. Verse 32 says they were united in heart and mind. Other translations say they were united in heart and soul. Um, But either way, I think it's hard to imagine what this looks like because we might not see this kind of community church living all of the time, particularly when we are some of those things that I said earlier. We're hypocritical sometimes, and we're a little bit sometimes fake, perhaps. Uh, But when we were last visited by Luke Geraghty from Red Bluff Vineyard in the States, which is actually where Steve is right now, uh, he made an observation about what happens when people join a church, which I thought was quite funny, Um, I may get this a little bit wrong, so maybe go back and listen to the talk again. Um, So just humor me for a minute. Uh, But he said that when people join a new church, they go through this um, like honeymoon phase, and they they go, and the worship is wonderful, um, and the coffee is amazing, and the speaker is inspirational and challenging, and then they meet some people. (laughs) And people are awful. People moan, and they fall out and they hide secrets from you, and they talk behind your back, 
uh, and then you leave that church and find another one that perhaps doesn't have any people in it. And it's funny because it's true. I'd like to think actually some of us have done a bit of that. Um, if, if you've been in the church a long time, you may have decided to do something like that, and we can relate to it. We recognize the narrative of church being difficult because people are difficult. And I think that the only way we can get around this is through honesty. Are we honest with each other? Are we real? Do you feel like you have to change your behavior when you walk into this building? Because if you do, we're doing something wrong. Um, about three years ago, Daniel and Emily Smith, who have planted Gloucester Vineyards, came to our house for dinner. As their car was pulling onto our drive, Rachel and I started to row. <laughs> now, this was unlike any other row. It was absolutely, to this day, the worst row we have ever had in our marriage. Um, we don't really row very often, but this was really bad. And I, I could see Daniel's face as he was pulling onto the drive, like laughing and smiling. I'm like... So I was just about to text and say, can you just give us five minutes? I don't know why I thought five minutes. It wasn't going to get solved in typical man, like, yeah, we'll just get it out, get it done in five minutes. Uh, but instead, um, I, I don't know why, I just walked to the door, I threw it open, I said, hey, guys, come in, we've just had a massive row. <laughs> to which um, Daniel replied with a smile. He went, great, let's sit and talk about it. <laughs> um, anyway, we talked about it. And it was resolved quite quickly. Um, and then we got to the, the bottom of why we rowed, and it was stupid. I can't even remember what it was, but it was so stupid, which is often the way it goes, isn't it? Um, but I imagine that's what the community in Acts looked like. They, they were united in heart and mind. They, they did stuff together like that. They, they shared their griefs and their sorrows and their anger, and they dealt with it as a body of people because they realized they were united in heart and mind. They trusted each other. They loved each other, and they bore the burden of those in the community like a family. Galatians 6, 1-3 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path, and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. So remember this week, if you're feeling a little bit down, Paul thinks you're not important. <laughs> but I, I know this is referring to people overcome by sin, um, but if you look at Paul as a, as a person and as a character, he's instructing the church in Galatia to do this because he's witnessed this firsthand in the early church. Paul's calling them to live as a people that are united in their flaws and their weaknesses. And this is exactly what... Dan and Emily did at our house that day, uh, and it's how we're called to live as the covenant community filled with Jesus. The second feature of a healthy church is one that embraces sacrificial giving. This is all over this verse. It's in verses 32, 34, and 35, and it says that they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. And then 34 and 35 says there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses, would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So now we have an example of the early church doing something practical in response to their newfound community. They were, by definition, putting their money where their mouths are. So why is money important in this context? Well, as we know, what we do with our money speaks 
volumes. The way we use our money and the way we think about our possessions demonstrates what sort of person you are, or in this context, what sort of community we are. The value that you place on money will determine the way that you live, and it seems that the early church had grasped that concept. They were very aware of the impact that money had on people. But it's also really important to note the level of sacrifice that was obviously required here as well, in that some of the disciples had to sell land and houses in order to provide for those in need. It's a pretty big step. But it started with their attitude. Verse 32 says that they felt, they felt that what they owned was not their own. God didn't tell them. God didn't say, you need to sell your house and your land. They felt that what they owned was not their own. I've wondered what this phrase really means and what it looks like, and I, I, I think it, it, it looks like they felt that their place of wealth was a gift from God. It was not something they'd gained themselves. And so with that attitude, it wasn't necessarily a chore or a burden to have to sell their possessions because they didn't actually own them anyway. Um, I read a couple of commentaries on these verses as I was preparing, and I laughed when I read one in particular um, you may agree with this, though, so that's fine. Um, and, and this author, this one particular author, had said that this was simply an act of Christian communism, um, proposing that the, the wealthy were basically guilt-tripped into selling their possessions so that they could share the wealth and eradicate need. Uh, but I don't see it like that at all. Because of verse 32, it looks like the big hint here is in their attitude. They didn't see material possessions as being acquired through their own doing, they saw it as a gift from God. Therefore, there is no burden in selling possessions and sharing out. It comes from a place of voluntarily deciding to renunciate mammon or money as something that can potentially hold power in your lives. Isn't that really powerful? That's really powerful. And then this radical and pure act of generosity, the wealthy disciples among them simply eradicated poverty in the church. If anyone needed an example of the kind of power money can hold, it's in this scripture. Money holds enormous power, and it can control us through the fear of losing it or through the fear of not having enough. But the disciples made a conscious choice not to live in fear, but in faith, so that they could be a church without any need. Like it says in verse 35, they gave to those in need. Therefore, money meant freedom, not control. That's amazing. Uh, Rachel and I were at uh, the New Wine Conference last summer. Last summer's that way, for some reason. <laughs> um, last summer. Uh, and I was particularly challenged by someone, uh, something one of the speakers um, shared. Uh, this guy was a pastor from this church in Los Angeles, and I felt personally, um, sorry, he felt prompted by this very scripture uh, his church is situated in quite a poor community in L.A., and he realized that because of this, very few people in the church were tithing. After all, how can you tithe if you have no money? So he prayed about it, and God felt, he felt God tell him to do something rather risky. Uh, he felt it was right um, to slightly alter the way the offering was taken on a Sunday morning. Instead of handing the bucket around... I'm not saying we're going to do what I'm just about to say, by the way. Uh, instead of handing it around for people to put money into, he would do that still. But he also introduced a system whereby people could take money out if they needed it. We've all dreamed of that, haven't we? <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> so therefore, 
If you couldn't afford a bill that month, take some money out. If you couldn't afford the shop, the food shop that week, take your money out. If you need some fuel for your car, take some money out. And he started to find that people in his church were beginning to have their basic needs met. And then some of them found that they could then begin to tithe a little bit. Of course, he didn't do it so that people could tithe more. Uh, but by changing his focus, he was effectively able to replicate the early church in that a culture of generosity was born and then cultivated. And now his church in LA is known for the church that gives you free money, which is cool. <laughs> so I, I'm, am I saying that we need to sell everything and, and give it away, sell our houses and our cars and our businesses? No, I am not saying that. After all, Acts makes it pretty clear that uh, not all the houses were actually sold um, because the disciples still needed places to go um, and they still had lands they could use. And obviously we need to be good stewards of what God has given us and clearly we need to make sure that we're housing and feeding and caring for our families. Um, but the message here in, in Acts is that mammon or money can clearly be an obstacle in our lives. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierce themselves with many sorrows. So if we're to have a healthy church culture that reflects Jesus, where the world can see Jesus when it looks at us, we need to iron out our attitudes towards money. And I believe that this was done in a very specific way at the very beginning of the church because they knew that. Uh, I believe we're, we are a very generous church, but I also know that if you speak to our assistant pastor, James Tweets, his vision is to eradicate Ellsbury of poverty for there to be no need. Uh, which suggests we're not quite there yet, really. Finally, our third feature of a healthy church is how powerfully and boldly we can testify and evangelize. Verse 33 says, The apostles testify powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. Now, nestled in between these two verses, these verses about giving away possessions and giving to the needy, we have this one verse that could easily be overlooked to be honest. But I don't think that it's placement in between, sort of sandwiched between these two ver these verses about giving um, is a mistake at all. Luke, who is um, commonly known to be the writer of Acts, makes it really clear that testifying powerfully remains the church's central priority. It is a reminder that community life and unity and sacrificial generosity is all great, but it's not the end result. Everett Harrison puts it like this. He says that maintenance of the group was not the primary consideration. Above all, this was a witnessing community, and for this reason, they enjoyed much grace from the Lord. What good is it to work hard on perfecting church community and then maintaining it, only to forget the wider community that we're here to serve? How hypocritical would we be if we had a lovely church filled with lovely people, but we didn't have storehouse, or if we didn't offer free meals to families in the school holidays, or if we didn't help and support refugees in Europe, or if we didn't open up the building to organizations around our county. I don't want to be a part of a church like that. Um, and, and yet I do believe we can do more. We can always do more. We're simply not called to maintain a garden, metaphorically. And if we do... We're going to be passive and ineffective and of no real use to the world. It's not enough to be united in heart and mind and soul and live lives of generosity. That just isn't why the church exists. 
I was recently talking to a colleague of mine about church, as she seemed to be interested in why anyone would want to study theology. I don't blame her. <laughs> um, she wouldn't call herself a Christian, but she did tell me that she used to go to church occasionally when she was younger, and I asked her what her experience of church was, um, but to be honest, I didn't really like her answer. She told me that she had personally found Christians she had known to be judgmental, hypocritical, and fake. Fake because they didn't respond to the needs of the world around them, and constantly she, her experience was that she would see things happening around her church that weren't being responded to, that she felt, well, if we're going to do what's in the Bible, then we need to do this. Uh, but since she's told me this, I've been working hard to try and change that perspective as much as I can. So please pray for me so I can have that influence at, at work. Um, I, I've not been discounting her experience, but I am praying that God would help me to not be those things um, so that I can have more of a positive impact. But I wonder how many others have this perception of Christians, and I wonder how much of that is due to a lack of powerful testimony. But it, I, I do wonder, what does powerful testimony look like in our modern world? Because it was easy for the disciples. A lot of them had, had witnessed Jesus' resurrection, so that was their powerful testimony. Um, but I think a lot of it in our modern world is actually found in our actions. The world that we now live in is one where words are cheap, but action is powerful. Social media has made our language and our words less meaningful. People's opinions are plastered everywhere and updated several times daily. But the world now mostly recognizes and honors action. Climate change has taken our, place, our planet to a place of crisis where talk is no longer useful, but committed action is required. Knife crime and county lines drug operations require swift action and plentiful resources, not talk and debate. Our use of plastic has got to a point now where we can no longer discuss it, but we simply need to be deliberate about the way that we use it. Those are just a few examples of, of how important action is in our modern world, and just to see the trend of how people think and what they really care about. And we need to take that on, and we need to be a church that responds with powerful, active testimony, because it largely won't look like it did in the early church. We can talk about the resurrection, and we will, and that's what Jesus calls us to, but it's, it's both and. We need to do the resurrection stuff, and we need to be active and do things which the, which the world can honor. Some people you know may find Christians to be judgmental, hypocritical, and fake, and I really believe that we need to engage with that and address it intentionally and actively without taking any offense. We need to get to the bottom of it and then, and then work hard to change that in some people. Uh, Jeff, is Jeff around? Awesome. If you could just pop up, that'd be lovely. Thank you. Uh, just to recap before we pray, uh, let's look back at that Smith Wigglesworth quote. Where might we not be filled with Jesus? Are we satisfied just popping to church on a Sunday morning and then ignoring that part of our lives Monday to Saturday? Because I, honestly, I feel like I have at times. Um, unfortunately. Do you think that the world sees Jesus when it looks at the church, both our local church and our global church? These are not easy questions to answer, and uh, it's definitely really challenging to reflect on our practice and to look at it. But we have this blueprint in Acts, and there will be others, and 
I'm sure you can find them. Let's aim to be united in heart and mind. Let's help each other and correct each other and love each other. Let's try to be radically generous and work hard to eradicate need where we see it. And let's never forget to testify powerfully. We cannot simply afford to maintain what we have. We need to grow and we need to be active in our world.